Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Dean Stoker. Dean was co-founder and former CEO of Alteryx and current chairman of Alteryx, a $5 billion market cap data analytics automation platform. Dean, welcome to World of DAS. Hey, I'm, I'm glad I'm a data nerd. Yeah, well, good. <laughs> We've got two of us here. So it's a very, plus probably every single person listening to this is a data nerd too. So now, Alteryx is a really interesting company and not too many people understand like the whole history. It was, it was founded in 1997 um, and you kind of took a different approach to building Alteryx than the, than the typical venture funded SaaS company. I think it took Alteryx like 10 years to get to 10 million in revenue. And then all of a sudden it just like exploded and everything took off. Like, how did you how did you even stick with it the whole time? And what's, what's that Genesis story? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great journey. Um, in fact, I'm writing a book right now <clears throat> called Masterpiece, the, emo- the Emotional Journey to Creating Anything Great. Ah, okay. I got to read this. And it is, it is a long journey. It, uh, you know, there's, there's two ways, I think, to, to see success in the tech world. One is, you know, be the tortoise. Uh, and the other is to be the hare. <clears throat> and I think it depends on what sector you're in and the DNA that you and your team are, are made of. To, to kind of determine what, what path to take. For us, it was a 20-year-old overnight success to get to, to, get to IPO, uh, which is definitely not your conventional uh, Silicon Valley journey. Although I, I have to be careful when I say that because if you look back at even companies like Tableau, it took them, I think, 15 years to go public. Um, so it's not like it, you just don't hear about these stories. You hear about the rocket ship you know, that, that went public in three years and it's grown at 200%. Um, but, but so our, our journey started early and, and, uh, you're right. It took a decade to get to 10 million. Um, we went public 20 years after we started and we were 85 million in revenue, uh, when we went out in, in March of 17. And, uh, I think this year um, we're expected to do north of uh, 600 million ARR. In some ways, like Charlie Munger has a uh, famous saying to, to he wants to get rich slowly. Um, and sometimes people are in too much of a hurry to 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 get wealthy. Do you kind of ascribe that, or how do you how do you think about it? Well, I, I if if the opportunity had um, arisen to go faster, I, I would have, uh, you know, it's funny because Charlie Munger might be right on one hand as an investor, but on the other hand, if you're, if you're listening to the pundits in on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley, um, I think the, the phrase is slow growth is slow death. And so somewhere in between is, is the truth. Yeah. And for us, you know, I, I always tell, I do a lot of mentoring now that I'm retired, do a lot of mentoring to uh, young CEOs who might not be prepared for a 23-year journey. And so I, I mentor them on things that they need to, to think about. And, you know, it, it, I, I think that go, going back to, to speed, um, you shouldn't worry about going fast. You should, you know, the CEO's only job is to make sure that your money um, outlasts your ability to find the product market fit. 
And for us, it just took a long time. I, I don't think the product market fit really took hold until 2014. You basically invented this kind of category of analytic automation, right? Can, can you explain what, what that is? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. So the analytic space has been very fragmented for a long, long time. I think we're probably the only pure play uh, and self-service analytics vendor uh, that exists today. Um, and there's so much confusion about analytics. On one hand, you've got uh, the diagnostic dashboard folks who believe that they're involved in analytics. You've got a billion Excel users who believe they're dealing with analytics. You've got, you know, a million SAS Institute users who believe that data science is, is critical. And nobody really had a good handle on defining what the analytics space looked like. And, and over the last five years or so, we began to hone in on what was really happening in, in the space. And, and it, it began, I think, with the, the, the first wave of digital transformation where people said, we, we need to automate processes. We need to identify our business processes and find out how to build analytics around them and then automate them. <clears throat> and data during this time was also fairly elusive. Um, it's still very fragmented. Data is all over the place, in the cloud, on the ground, uh, in every container, every type. And, and many different apps, yeah. It's all over. And, and so in our case, we decided to make sure that we uh, could could see the, the emergence of, of the data world with the automation world. And the only way you can actually get to digital transformation is the third element of analytic process automation, and that is upskilling of the worker. It's never gonna be done by people living in VLOOKUPs in Excel, and it's never, you know, digital transformation isn't going to be done by the, the SAS, you know, PhD trained statisticians. It's gonna be done by mere mortals in, the line of business in, in every uh, functional area from sales ops to marketing ops to FPNA to supply chain. And so we, you know, our road was intentional. We said, we're going to take the biggest TAM. <clears throat> we're not going to fall into the BI trap. We're not going to fall into the, the descriptive analytics uh, uh, trap. Um, we recognized early on that analytics is a continuum. It's, it goes from really simple things that you can do in a dashboard like Tableau or Click. Um, all the way up through spatial analytics to predictive modeling, to machine learning, to automated modeling. And we're the only platform that actually allows code-free and code-friendly approaches to that entire continuum. You benefited from this massive trend over the last, at least over the last 10 years, we've seen this massive rise of data science, right? So the number of data scientists has grown 10X, more than 10X in the last 10 years. Uh, there's a lot. So, so you, you've had, you had this like huge, you obviously you saw that trend early and you had this huge wave that helped your, I, I'm sure that helped your company. How did you like identify that trend? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Cause I, I don't think we, we knew it was going to happen. We, we knew that there would be the emergence of the citizen data scientist. Yep. Uh, we're never going to see more than 2 million trained statisticians in the world. Uh, but we've identified 50 million uh, potential citizen data scientists who typically live in complex view lookups. Like a McKinsey analyst or something? or uh, Of course, of course. And, and this, this is why today we have 100,000 users of Alteryx at PwC because they hated their jobs b before using Excel trying to do this complex work. And they all, as a company, to digitally transform, they actually wanted to upskill the entire workforce. And, and Alteryx is a perfect vehicle 
for upskilling workers to really get a the better sense around seeing data as an asset and analytics as as a continuum, um, all, all for the purpose of automating all business processes so that you can see, seek out the what's re- reported as being a $15 trillion value that's locked up in, in data sources uh, around the world. The, the first time we met, you, you told me that the, the derivation of the word alterx is from alter yx. And, and so explain like the geospatial roots of alterx. Yeah, no, it, well, that's that's where most of my career had been. I grew up in the data business, um, very similar to the kinds of things you're doing, although this was long before cloud. And so, you know, having a data as a service uh, wasn't really an offering back in, in the day when, when I was uh, working for content companies. But all the companies I worked for <clears throat> sold data. And I don't think many of them recognize that the ultimate value in content is when that content becomes ubiquitous. If everyone has the ability to touch it, to play with it, to make it dance. And, and the only way you can get ubiquity in, in content, and I don't care if it's, if it's uh, POI data, uh, if it's, if it's uh, demographic information, uh, things coming out of SQL stores or off of cloud services, <clears throat> it's, just, it's just data to, to me. And the ultimate value that you get is, is when everyone has it. In order that, for that to occur, um, people have to have that data wrapped around in, in elegant, easy to use software. You know, our drag and drop, click and run approach was the answer to that. You then have to apply um, a, a, an analytic layer to allow users to um, prosecute both the simple uh, analytics in a dashboard that might end up in Tableau or a PowerPoint presentation or whatever, all the way up through uh, automated modeling. And, um, you know, I, I, I just think that, that what happened what was we saw the first wave in about 2009 with the emergence of click. And we, and we said, well, there they made it. They made it easy to, you know, create beautiful dashboards, uh, but it was it was still sold to IT. It was managed by IT, uh, governed by IT, paid for by IT. And we we said that's not the market we want to be in. And we said there's going to be something next because every disruption that occurs in the tech world has uh, successors, and it was Tableau. It was Tableau in 2000. 11, 12. And we so saw we, like Looker and, you know, some of these other companies. Yeah. But, but, we, but we started, we started in the spatial business until we found that product market fit. Um, you know, in order, in order for uh, Alteryx to survive, we had to find high value use cases for our platform. We were selling Alteryx uh, for $55,000 a seat in 2013. Yeah. We were selling it for $4,000 in 2014. And so, so for spatial, because my background was spatial, we said, let's, you know, because every very best at this one, one niche. Let's be great at, at spatial because spatial is a weird science. It's hard to do. Um, my belief is that the Esri's and the map info is as good as those companies were. They weren't, they were focused on the map, not on the answers. And in some cases, the, the answer can be found in a, in a map, but it's the content that drives it. You know, data is the, uh, the fuel, the rocket fuel for GIS, the elixir of life for a box of tools. <clears throat> and so we said, let's just prosecute spatial. 
we'll start to add in all the other components of the analytic continuum until we find the perfect product market fit. And we found that in 2014. You mentioned this like data sets, like it seems like they they all they become more valuable, obviously, when you can easily use them and manipulate them. So that's that's where the value of like an Alteryx comes in. They also become more valuable when they are more easily joined to other data sets, right? Whether that's joined to internal first party data or other third party data sets. How do you think about things like join keys or the value of these other ways of like linking these data sets together? Well, even in even doing spatial analytics requires the ability to join uh, multiple data sets. So if you're doing complex spatial work like network optimization for retailers, <clears throat> super, super hard problem that the Esri's and the map infos had struggled with. Um, not, not because they couldn't do it, but the engines weren't fast enough to perform. Uh, if you have a couple of thousand stores in your network and uh, a few million uh, data points for block centroids or whatever it happens to be with a bunch of demographic information and competitive information and price information. It's really hard to, to perform these, these kinds of things. And so we, we just decided to, to focus in on, well, the thing that everyone needs. I mean, everything that happens in business happens somewhere. And so we decided to to focus in on that. And I think we we really got our footing with um, spatial. And then customers started saying, hey, this is so easy to use. You know, I, I can now join all my relevant data sources. We did a study back in, um, I think just before we went public uh, with IDC. And they said that 64% um, of analysts said they need no less than seven disparate databases for any analytic outcome. Wow, okay. Yeah. So, uh, you so know, joining them together is really important. Jo joining and and cleaning and organizing and enhancing and and uh, all of that stuff becomes very very important if you're going to get to analytics that matter for people. But you mentioned uh, Esri a couple of times, like the CEO of Esri, Jack Dangerbar, was has also been on on this uh, podcast, and and in some ways, like you remind me a lot about him. Like you both built these like very iconic companies. You both kind of got rich slowly. You both kind of like built your companies in Southern California. Like, is that a, is it a fair comparison to both of your geo nerds? Um, are, is it a fair comparison to compare you guys? Uh, it's funny. I, I, I admire Jack a lot. He, you know, he's built a, a billion five company, something like that. I almost went to work there actually before starting Alterx. Interesting. And uh, I told Jack, no, I said, I'm, I'm going to start my own business. And for, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if there's really any comparisons. I, I think we see the GIS world completely differently. Um, you know, his, his perhaps um, through the lens of a map and mine through the lens of data uh, because it ultimately, I mean, that's the alter YX, you know, you gotta, you gotta have the data uh, before the, the map becomes even relevant. And, it, you know, you think about navigation in your car, you don't look at the map, you listen to the directions, right? It's just, it's a data play. And so I'm not minimizing the importance of a map for certain applications, but um, I don't know, it's, Public sector, I think they do incredible work. I think they haven't done as well in the in the private sector because people want more more people to utilize geospatial, and Alteryx provides that mechanism for everyone to engage. In that time frame where you're starting to expand, you're starting to grow. Like, 
how did you figure out how to break into new industries? Did you leverage partners? Did you hire like specific industry focused sales force to, to like, how did you break into these new different industries? It's a great question because uh, by design, we were um, horizontal. We chose not to go into a vertical uh, until year 20, I think 21. Oh, wow. Okay. It, well, we, because we didn't, we didn't want to box ourselves in, you know, as being the price optimization vendor or, or, or just the geospatial vendor. Uh, and a lot of the, the point solutions that exist out there, they're all getting disrupted by Alteryx uh, because people don't, people want more, more capabilities and fewer tools, not more tools. And instead of having a software portfolio, if you're an enterprise company, instead of having you know, 15 different analytic solutions for each functional area, you get one with Alteryx. And then you provide mobility uh, for your workforce because they can now go from sales ops to FPNA or FPNA to supply chain or whatever it happens to be. And so we decided to go horizontal for a long time until I think healthcare might've been one of our first because domain expertise in these complex data worlds like healthcare where you've got lots of regulatory compliance and HIPAA rules and um, disconnected, disparate uh, healthcare data sets. Uh, I think that's when we started realizing that deeper expertise uh, would generate uh, additional ARR. Did you find any success in using channels or did you were basically always going direct to the customer? No, we, we did, in fact, <laughs> you might not believe this, but the very some of the very earliest customers of Alteryx were ESRI and MapInfo, where we OEM'd our technology. Okay, so essentially they were big channels in a way, or it, they were not. MapInfo was a big channel. <clears throat> uh, they actually tried to buy us back in I think it was two thousand two, um, and of course we were not even you know on first base yet with the company so we, we said we're just gonna roll this out because we think it's a it's a significant play uh, but for channel partners yeah we leverage channel partners uh in significant ways both resellers in local markets so today we're selling in something like 93 countries around the world and usually there's a partner involved if it's uh outside of a you know a, a domain where we've got a sales team and a support team. Uh, so we lead with channel partners. They're very good on the land. Some are better on the expand than, than others. Um, but the best partnerships tend to be the um, analytic consulting firms, the global SIs. Almost all of them have standardized in Alteryx, um, KPMG. Right, so they're, they're both your customer and then they bring you into new customers when they when they sign engagements and stuff. Yeah, in, in almost all cases, they were sell to. And then they realized that, you know, we can we can recommend this to customers uh, or we can do all the work for customers using this platform. And so uh, they've become a great uh, channel for us both. Is there a way to like incent them to more likely recommend or, or how, do, how do you how do you build that relationship with them? Uh, I think for for most of them, because they're customers first, we don't have to re wait for them to recommend something because they they see the value they see the roi in in almost every use case and so i don't there's no special incentives there's 
you know, fairly margin, fairly low margin shift. And, um, you know, some of our biggest global partnerships now uh, have um, a, a model where uh, aspirationally it's a billion dollars in revenue to us over five years. So it's not, it's not um, the same as resellers, but both are, are critical in, in global growth. Because Alteryx has really built a, a very large user community. You've got this academy, you've got discussions, you've got events, support. Um, I, I actually spoke at an Alteryx event in 2018, it was, it was amazing. It was huge. Um, it was like, like, it seemed like you took over the entire town of Irvine. Um, you know, what advice would you give to emerging software companies about how to develop a community? Well, I think what's funny is, is most, most software companies, um, I'm not sure they even believe in communities. They see it, they see it as a, a, a uh, cost. And, I can, I can tell you that it, it is not And So I had community report to me for the first uh, three years because I wanted it to be. Oh, a, you had like, like a head of community reported directly to the CEO. To me. Yeah. Be because, because what we recognized is that when, when we talk about this, this big analytic continuum, it, it's tricky because you can do almost anything in Alteryx. I mean, it's used for everything from, um, derivatives modeling and banking to hedging fuel in in uh, airlines to running you know on field player analytics for the green bay packers and so it, it, it covers off in this gigantic swath and because there's hundreds of tools uh, or what we call building blocks inside of Alteryx that can be used together and that means a hundred uh, two or 300 factorial. So we have now billions of combinations of, of how you could build analytic pipelines. People need, uh, well, what we've, I guess it, what I'm trying to say is we proved that analytics is a social experience. Okay, so wait, even when you were like 10 million in revenue, you mentioned you're 55,000 a seat. So you only have a, a couple hundred seats essentially at 10 million in revenue. You still had this like community function reporting to you and it was really focused on this robust no, community? No, no, we, we, because back in 2013, um, we were doing these $55,000 seats. We'd probably add eight or nine logos a quarter. In 2014, we did a bunch of price testing with Tableau and we found the sweet spot. We found the fact that people who use Tableau don't want to be just in Tableau. They actually want to move up the analytic continuum and Tableau couldn't provide the rest of that continuum. And that's when we recognized we went from nine logos a quarter to 250 logos a quarter it, day one. It was crazy. And, and so we knew that having a community uh, was going to be valuable, especially as we saw net expansion rates that were, you know, the industry, SaaS industry average for net expansion is something like 106 or 107. Uh, for us, for G2K customers, I think it's still 134, something like that. Holy mackerel. Wow. That's <clears> really so high. When, people, yeah. when people land with two seats in 45 days, uh, we know that they're going to buy a bunch more seats in the subsequent quarters. And so we, we wanted to provide an experience that would allow people to communicate with each other, to share workflows. Uh, and we have a massive community now. We, we've won a bunch of awards for, for being the number one community. Okay, so step one in advice is like, just care about the community. 
um, essentially, like actually think it's important. Uh, what what's step two? Like, how does like you can't like it doesn't like I've been involved in a lot of companies who want to do a community. Somehow, it still doesn't just appear. It seems like it's a lot of work to develop a community. You have you have to invest. I, I would I would say have a commitment to. Well, our, our, my phrase within the company has always been customer trust defines the integrity of your company. And to gain that trust, you've got to support them. And you can either support them um, linear, linearly by hiring a bunch more people as you win more customers, which is a terrible financial model, or, or you, you build out a community to where they can support each other. Uh, not only do you get massive ticket deflections in your support center, uh, but you actually get people coming up with incredible ideas and sharing work product that that uh, you hadn't thought of before. So I would say, make sure you invest. I, I, I don't know how many people we have in the community team today. It's got to be well north of uh, 25 or 30, which is very unusual uh, because most executives, when they decide to cut something, the first thing they go at are things like community. And that's that's just, uh, you know, we publicly have, have stated that, uh, community users of Alteryx, those companies uh, expand three times as much as people who are not involved in communities. So we know it works for the benefit of us and, and most importantly, the benefit of customers. Well, I've been like in and around the Alteryx like community and forums and stuff like some of these top community members have posted like thousands of times. Yeah. How do you think about these engaged members? How do you How do you get people up the stack to get them more engaged? Is it just is it just kind of supporting them and trusting them or how do you, how do you kind of move them to kind of like once a year to many, many, many times a year? Well, I, again, I think that's just the natural impact of having spent the money and had a company focus around community people who, you know, you look at the, the entire software world has gone social with almost everything. And we kind of knew once we started to see the, the expand model that it was going to happen in a complex space like this uh, too. And so I, I, uh, I think it's just natural. It's just natural. Pe- people who obviously we put in a lot of uh, gamification, uh, lots of badges. And so there's, there's the reward system of, of having all the badges but people genu- genuinely want to help other people. And uh, it's been really one of the best things I've ever done. You talked a couple of times, like there was this transition where you went from 55K a seat to 4K a seat. As a CEO, to me, that sounds like an incredibly scary time, even if you really believe in your strategy and your market. Did, how did you go into that? Did you do anything to kind of like mitigate that before, you know, because it might not start working like day one or like, how do you, how do you think about that, that decision? In some ways, it seems like one of the most important decisions that was made in the company's history was that one decision. It, it was one of many big decisions. Um, well, I, it, it's, it's when you go from being a tortoise to becoming the hare. And we were, we knew it was going to happen. We just knew it was going to happen. Um, because it was click and then Tableau. And then, you know, the, the contemporary audience of, of software vendors that we grew up with had, I think had chosen the wrong path. You know, the, the Pexatus, Trifactus, Data Mirrors, Burst. Uh, I think the only other one that actually has made it was, was Domo. Um, and, and, you know, they've struggled with, with the getting to even their last round. I think they're right about, 
uh, market cap where their last round of funding was uh, three years ago. Um, so, I, you know, it was $30 million when we made that decision. We were $30 million and um, we did testing. We, we did testing and as an analytics company, the last thing you, you want to do is prove it to yourself that you need to do it and then be afraid to make the decision. And so we, we made the decision. We had some make goods with customers who had paid us the previous quarter, uh, $55,000 a seat. How did that, like, did you see, so you just called up some huge customer and said, hey, you were, you were paying us uh, uh, a few hundred K a year and now you're paying us like, like 30 K a year. Like, no, no, they would still pay us a few hundred K a year. We just give them a whole bunch more seats. You're still paying the same revenue, but now we're going to give you, uh, we're going to allow a lot more people to, in your organization to start benefiting from this product. Yeah. And this, this is part of those difficult decisions on the emotional journey to creating anything great. It's um, for me, community was a big decision because we, we, you know, there were arguments with product early on because I said, if we're going to build a community, we're going to integrate it into the UI of the platform. And not everybody believed in community because in the companies that they had been with, community wasn't held to, to a high standard. Um, and so the, those decisions uh, were important, pricing decisions, packaging, um, yeah, making acquisitions to, to round out the platform were important decisions. I think the most important decision, if there's you know up and coming entrepreneurs in your in your audience here, uh, was uh, starting a, a group we uh, a strategy team we call Bing Fa. Um, I'm, a, I'm a somewhat of a Sun Tzu Art of War fan, and uh, Sun Tzu said that strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. Tactics without strategy is the noise before defeat. And so early on in 2004, uh, at our very first strategy meeting, um, we had been building out individual components for Alteryx uh, for the first six years, allocates, solo cast, geonetics, uh, our own geocoding engine. Um, and we decided in, in 2004 at the very first uh, strategy Bing Fa meeting, uh, we decided to build Alteryx the platform. And it was out uh, about a year and a half later. If I remember right, you grew the business initially to about 20 million in revenue before taking outside funding. Um, what was the decision to like put off the fundraising? It was an overt strategy? And then like, why, why at that point should you step up the gas and, and bring in some extra out, you know, outside capital? All of the, the founders, we all grew up in family run businesses. So we all kind of knew that you had to be conservative until you needed to be a little bit more aggressive. And, and for me, until you find the product market fit, that's the most expensive part. That is the most expensive part. And I think the other part of it is just outlook. So, you know, the, the Valley has great companies, but there's a lot of people who I think see raising money as a badge of honor. Um, I always saw right, it as a score. A, some people have it as a scorecard as, as itself. We raised $100 million or and we're you know, a unicorn. just going to celebrate the company. Uh, yeah. And to, to me, that I always saw raising money as a sign of a weakness until you find the product market fit. And so, yeah, we raised, we went 14 years self funded. Uh, 2011 was our first raise. We raised uh, um, $6 million. Um, we were 18 million at the time. Um, and then of course, 
once we saw the product market fit, I raised 163 million in three rounds over four years. And then in 2017, uh, went public. And so there's a time and a reason to, to raise money, but not, not because you want to be a unicorn. Cause I, I think that's, we, we, in fact, our favorite line was we didn't want to be a unicorn. We wanted to be a monster truck. <laughs> and, and a monster truck was defined by us as um, a $500 million market cap company growing at 50%. And we, we did that. We did that. And uh, in the end, we ended up at a five, five and a half billion dollar play, which is not too bad. Yeah, not too bad at all. Now, you, uh, one of the things you did right before or, or, or pretty close to going public is you, you changed out basically the entire leadership team, except for, except for the co-founders. Like, how did you think about that decision and, and how should, how would you advise other founders thinking about their leadership team in different stages? Yeah, I think, I think the, the hard part about being a CEO is that you've got to be willing to make those you know, tough decisions. So to think that the people who got you to 20 million or the people who are going to get you to 200, uh, I think there'll be people who surprise you that can do that. I, I certainly had people who could do that. But I think as the stakes get bigger, uh, as the public optics get you know more critical, um, you just have to be willing to, to change out. And so, yeah, I think the three or four months before the IPO and the two months after the IPO, pretty much everybody on my team was, was new. I mean, those are scary decisions because, you know, I hired all those people, (laughs) but, but you got to know who's rowing in your boat, you know, when the, when the seas get uh, tough and not everyone's cut out for it. Now, recently after 23 years at the helm of the company, you decided to step down as CEO you know, it's like peak COVID, you're, you're stepping down, like walk us through that decision and what, what advice would you give to other long serving CEOs? Uh, well, I, I tell you what, Aaron, the, the funniest thing for me was um, I never really thought much about succession planning. Now I'm 64 years old, so that has to come into play. I, even though I'm healthy, it has to come into play at some point. Hey, Warren Buffett's still running uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think he now has a successor. He does now, finally, yes. Yeah. But my very first board meeting, our uh, NomGov uh, committee said to me, okay, we need to start succession planning. And I said, wait a minute. <laughs> you want me to plan my own demise? <laughs> and so we, we, we spent... Every, every single board meeting talking about succession planning. Starting even like 2012 type of time frame or? No, to that, 2017 with the board. Oh, okay, with like the public we discussed, board. We discussed it with, with, with the investors uh, from 2014 on, but it became more serious. One, because as a public company, you, you have to do succession planning. I mean, it would be a shame if, if something had happened and we weren't ready. And so I, you know, I, I started replacing my, my VCs off the board with operating uh, board members, found Mark Anderson uh, at Palo Alto Networks. Uh, he joined our board uh, almost three years ago now. And he, he was like a, the perfect um, outsider running for, for the role. Uh, and he's had a couple of years, you know, under his belt on the board and now, uh, has my role. And I think for, for, for founding CEOs, 
you have to be more careful with succession planning because a lot of CEOs who might take over might not want to, you know, have a, an executive chair like me looking over your shoulder. You you feel real ownership in this company, yeah. and so yeah, okay, yeah. I'm still the largest shareholder, and my my personal uh, uh, nest egg is in Ultrix stock, and so. Uh, you would think that, you know, I would be all over this stuff. And I told Mark, that was a great partnership that we made. I said, listen, I'm, I'm only going to help you when you ask for it. Um, I'll, I'll be a great board member and I'll lead the board, but I'm only going to you know get involved when you need me to get involved. And uh, there's been some cases, but, you know, because he's a first time CEO, uh, but he's got all the DNA to, to take Alteryx to a billion dollar company. How did you know this was the right time for you? How do you know, okay, 2020 rather than 2022 or 2018? Like, how do you know, okay, this is the time for me now to actually go through the succession? I don't think anyone really, well, there's probably people who plan their careers from start to finish <laughs> and they, they have it in a notebook and or on a calendar and, and they're living and dying by that calendar. I never really thought about it that way. I mean, I didn't start Alteryx till I was age 40. People, people say, you know, what would you tell your 25 year old self? I would say, don't wait till you're 40 to start. <laughs> and, and so um, I think I, I think it's knowing that you've built a business that can be inherited in a pretty seamless way that, um, you know, I was a, a quarterback in, in high school and I, would, I wasn't that great of a quarterback in part because I would always hand the ball off or someone else had to catch the ball. And so you, you have to be, you have, you know, you have to be willing and prepared to, to turn it over to somebody else. Um, and for me, I found the perfect guy and it just seemed like a good time. I didn't want to lose uh, Mark and his opportunity. And uh, he's, you know, he's done it twice. He's one of a handful of people on the planet that have built multi uh, multiple times to a billion dollars. Okay, so a couple of personal questions. So, if you were governor of California or Colorado, you know, what what data would you look at to better run the government? Wow. Well, I I think that that um, governments need to to utilize every possible piece of data to to be more efficient with taxpayers' money. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of work in state and local governments. We do some work in, in the, the Fed um, with interesting agencies like DOD and, and uh, Commerce. Uh, you know, our first two, two contracts with the Census Bureau was managing the delivery of uh, uh, decennial census data. And, you know, that data gets used by urban planners. It gets used by, by everybody. Yeah. By, by yeah. everybody. Uh, and so I, I think governments need to uh, be better stewards with our tax dollars by leveraging content uh, and, and not cell phone content and things like that. But I'm talking about things that really help uh, distribute services more efficiently. Um, and and I, I think until governments modernize their, their workforce, Efficiently, like a traveling salesman problem or like, okay, we just have to, or we have to actually invest in the things that are working and stop investing in things that are not working. Well, I think digital transformation needs to happen at all levels of government. Um, you know, a lot of the agencies in, in DC still are, are struggling. And I think chief data officers 
only came into to present being uh, less than two years ago. Um, and, and so, uh, understanding the data you've got rather than every agency having their own, you know, we'll look at the, the work that you're doing. I mean, all, all of the open gov, uh, initiatives for making it easier for people to consume everything from property tax records to voting data, even though there's probably people who wouldn't want that to happen. Um, there's all kinds of data that can be used to improve the way government operates because I think that smaller government is needed. And I think, you know, instead of raising taxes, let's figure out a way to, to leverage content to make better decisions. It's hard somehow in the inertia for government to make some of these hard decisions because there are there are these, these, these things that government are doing like incredibly well and there's uh, people are benefiting incredible, but there's also other things that maybe, you know, like, like all companies, you try things out and some things like didn't work out, um, but they keep going. Um, there's, there's this inertia to keep these, you know, certain things going that are maybe not working so well. How is there, is there, is that just like, do we just have to live with that? That's just the way it is for government? Or is there some sort of way of like getting, make, putting something in place so these harder decisions can be made? Well, this goes back to the very first part of the conversation that we, we started out in, and that was around APA, um, Analytic process automation needs to occur within the government. And the most important part of APA is upskilling the workforce. What's going to hurt government is when, you know, talented Python coders come out of college and they can say, do I want to go work for the government or do I want to go work for Google? And we know what, what decision they're going to make. And I think that puts the government further and further behind. So they've got to be cognizant of upskilling the workforce by giving them fun, engaging platforms like ours, probably not only ours, there's probably lots of other things that allow pe people to get excited about going to work and solving complex problems. And every agency has, has these issues. And I think that until there is a true digital transformation effort, and I know the government's invested a lot of money, but you're right, it's a big ship that is trying to turn. Um, they, they've got to do things a bit differently. And you know, Taking some lead from the private sector, I think, is a, a, a reasonable approach. Okay, last question we ask all of our guests, um, you know, beside for telling yourself in your 20s to, to start Alteryx uh, or a company like that, if you, went, if you had to go back in time, what advice would you wish you could have told your younger self? I think it really is about uh, having the courage to, to start. You know, I, and, I, and I guess I did. I, I have, and you'd read this in my book, I had three or four other uh, startups. Uh, they were small, it didn't cost me a lot, although one was a big enough to hurt. <laughs> um, but get out there and learn, learn and uh, take chances and identify opportunities. I mean, it's amazing what's what's happening. Clayton Christensen talks about disruptive innovation and there's so many things that have yet been disrupted. And that whole process of taking an old practice and putting it in the hands of a whole new user class. That's all we did. We, we, sim we didn't change analytics. We, we simply democratized it. And anyone who's, who's thinking about starting a business, make sure that it's a disruptive innovator and uh, take, take the chance and go for it. And, and don't isolate yourself because, you know, what I learned from the very beginning was that you know, no one's going to believe your idea as much as you. 
Um, and, and so be patient, get ready for the long journey because it will take you through the, uh, peaks of enlightenment and the troughs of disillusionment, <laughs> even through the, the swamp of effing despair. <laughs> yeah. And read some Sun Tzu maybe other way. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This has been awesome. Thank you. Dean. Tell people where they can find more about you uh, on the internet or. Uh, my LinkedIn is uh, Dean Stoker. Um, you can Google me. There's all kinds of, of fun interviews like this one um, from, from, you know, every, everyone from um, CNBC to uh, podcast with all kinds of people around the world and Middle East and in Europe. Um, and for any entrepreneurs who are interested, I'm happy to, you know, I've got more time on my hands, of course, now. Um, I'm happy to, to have a chat with you if you're trying to figure out what to do or struggling through some of the decisions. Cause I've over 23 years, I've probably seen most of the things that you're likely to see and uh, whether you take the information and run with it or seek additional advice, just don't be afraid to reach out. It's dstoker at altrix.com. One of the most amazing things about like the entrepreneurial environment that we live in is that there are people like you and, and you're not alone. There, there are, there, there are many people like you have had incredible success and then are willing to mentor and help. And I had many, when I was a younger CEO, I had many, many people like you help me out. And it's just this incredible thing in the water or the air that people like you are not just off on their yacht or, you know, something that they're actually, actually willing to be engaged and help people for really just, just, you know, just because they like to help. Well, I, I think that um, when you've been through the trials and tribulations of, of a 23 year journey, uh, not having raised for 14 years, there's a lot of advice that you can give to people. Oh yeah. There's forewarning. Um, there's no book you can buy that's going to tell you, you know, how to do this. Uh, my book might be the closest. It'll give you some tips, not not in running the business necessarily, but in running yourself. <laughs> when when does your book masterpiece come out? Uh, hopefully in September. We're kind of going through the uh, drafts at the, at the present moment. Okay, awesome. I, I really can't wait to read it. Thank you so much, Dean, for being a world of death. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Thanks to the data nerds. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of DAS is brought to you by SafeGraph.